Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, child abuse, sexual assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. You're surrounded by a circle of tattooed young men, your friends and future brothers. They draw closer, fists raised. You're terrified, but you've been waiting for this moment for months. This is your baptism. The leader starts counting slowly. One, two. A man socks you in the face, another in the stomach. The blows keep coming, but you don't fight back. Instead, you think about why you're doing this to prove your loyalty. You'll do whatever it takes, whether that means taking a beating or going to prison, even if it means killing your own friends. Because once this is over, you'll be one of them. Before long, you fall to the ground. Everyone does. The men keep kicking you until you're coughing up blood. And then the count reaches 13. The beating finally stops. One of the men pulls you to your feet, smiling. He says, welcome to the barrio. Now you're a member of MS-13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we're looking at a group that isn't exactly a cult, the street gang Mara Salvatrucha, also known as MS-13. While it's a gang and not a religious group, MS-13 shares some of the hallmarks of a typical cult, an in-group ideology, strict initiation rituals, and a grip on members that makes it nearly impossible to leave. This week, we'll examine MS-13's origins in Los Angeles. Next week, we'll explore how the teenage street gang was labeled an international crime syndicate, and what happened to members who tried to leave the gang life behind. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, 
sweet screams. With thousands of members across a half dozen countries, MS-13 is one of the largest gangs in the world. It's often called one of the most dangerous and violent as well. But to members, it's not just a criminal enterprise. It's a support system, a surrogate family, and above all, a means of survival. According to a report by Insight Crime and American University's Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, quote, the gang is a study in contrasts, a violent criminal group, to be sure, but also part social and part political. It is a group that can fill basic human needs just as easily as it can end a human life. MS-13 is not a cult. But as odd as it might sound, street gangs and fringe religious groups have more in common than you might think. The people who join gangs like MS-13 aren't cold-blooded monsters. By and large, they're children or adolescents who are looking for friendships and belonging. But once they're in, something shifts. The gang's grip on its members is so strong, they become willing to do anything for the group. Everything is suddenly fair game, even if it means committing senseless violence or putting their own lives at risk. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Although MS-13 is hardly a religion, it fulfills a similar psychological need. Sociologist Robert Brenneman notes that gangs and evangelical churches are both marked as a recognizable social group with distinct practices and ethical codes. Although those codes are extremely different, they serve the same purpose, to set them apart from their neighbors and create a shared sense of identity. If MS-13 was a cult, their god would be El Barrio, literally the neighborhood, but figuratively the gang's community. Members are expected to do whatever it takes to defend their territory and reputation. This idea is so strong that it becomes self-enforcing. Unlike most cults, MS-13 at large doesn't have a clear leader. The gang is a constellation of local cliques that operate somewhat autonomously. Each clique has a designated leader, but according to anthropologist Tom Ward, decisions are made by democratic anarchy. Rather than assigning tasks, members freely volunteer to take on various jobs as a way to prove their commitment. In general, MS-13 isn't a money-making operation. While they engage in small-scale extortion and drug dealing, the group barely breaks even financially. What they're known most for is violent crime, typically against rival gangs. Violence bolsters MS-13's reputation in the streets and keeps other gangs away from their turf. But it also gives members social capital inside of the gang. Sociologist Robert Brenneman interviewed many MS-13 members who spoke of taking risks and committing violent crime as the ultimate measure of one's commitment to the gang. Others described it as the most direct pathway to gaining respect. And the violence isn't just directed at outsiders. Notably, the gang's initiation ritual involves a beating from fellow members. According to a report by Interpeace, enduring the beating demonstrates honor, strength, and courage reproducing a model of masculinity that is of utmost importance for the group. This is especially true for female members, who naturally struggle to fit into the gang's masculine ideal. Women who want to join the gang have two options. They can be beaten just like the men and gain some respect for it, having shown themselves to be just as tough as anyone else. 
or they can be gang-raped and immediately lose all respect, falling into the gang stereotype of women as weak and submissive. Violence is also used to keep the gang members in check. Breaking the rules can lead to a disciplinary beating, expulsion from the clique, or in some cases, an execution. Yet the gang's rules are surprisingly simple. For example, there's no stealing from the gang's collective proceeds and no killing anyone without a green light from the higher-ups. Then there's a rule we've heard time and again on this show, no leaving. Once you're in the gang, you're in for life. The leaders can grant permission for a member to retire from day-to-day -day operations, but they still have to stay committed to El Barrio. But why would anyone pledge their life to a group of killers? To understand, we need to look at how the gang started as a survival mechanism on the unwelcoming streets of Los Angeles. MS-13 was founded around 1980 by a group of young Salvadoran refugees. They were among the hundreds of thousands who fled El Salvador during its bloody, decade-long civil war. L.A. was considerably safer than war-torn El Salvador, where entire towns were pillaged and burned by the military. Still, the refugees arrived during one of the most violent periods in the city's history. This was the beginning of the crack epidemic, which coincided with a historic boom in crime and gang activity. Beyond that, the lack of resources and public services in L.A.'s working-class neighborhoods made it hard for new immigrants to stay on their feet. And despite the growing Salvadoran community in the area, they were seen as outsiders by other Latino groups, including the Mexican gangs. One of MS-13's founding members, Ernesto Miranda, explained to NPR, as Salvadorans, we were a new immigrant group in LA. We decided we needed to organize to defend ourselves against the other gangs. So around 1980, Miranda and about 30 of his friends banded together to start their own gang the Mata Salvatrucha stoners. They were adolescents at the time. The group's name signified their situation, feeling stuck between two cultures. Mara is a Salvadoran slang term for gang, but some say it comes from an American movie, 1954's The Naked Jungle. The title was translated into Spanish as Cuando ruge la marabunda. Meanwhile, Salvatrucha originated from a term for the Salvadorans who stood up against colonialism in the 19th century. And of course, the early members were stoners. They had long hair, listened to heavy metal, and were more interested in smoking weed than getting into fights. At first, they were more of a social club than a criminal enterprise. According to Insight Crime and the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies, the gang's main purpose was to provide a sense of belonging. Their report says, quote, what seems to bind all these groups is that they're looking for a sense of place, a space where they can get protection and nurturing, both positive and negative, a space where others are supportive of one another, a space it can call its own. Henceforth, it's near constant references and symbols that beckon the homeland. But inevitably, they were drawn into the city's dark underbelly of gang violence. To see how MS-13 evolved from a group of preteen stoners into the transnational gang it is today, we're going to profile three former members who were involved in the gang in the 80s and 90s. Their experiences show how young people are drawn into the MS-13 and what happens when they try to leave. Coming up, we'll look at the early days of MS-13.
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Alex Sanchez came to the United States in 1979 when he was seven years old. His parents fled El Salvador a few years earlier, leaving Alex and his brother behind with neighbors. After a long and difficult journey across the border, the boys were passed off to parents they had no memory of. The family, which included two additional children, settled into a one-bedroom apartment in L.A.'s Koreatown. Sanchez's parents both worked long hours at multiple jobs, and when they were home, they often beat him things weren't much better at school. Sanchez was one of the only Salvadorans in his class, which made him a target for bullies. He later told the GBH News, I was not welcomed. I was made fun of. I was a seven-year-old boy and I was targeted by different ethnic groups and other people because of my accent and the lack of understanding the language. One day in fourth grade, Sanchez finally snapped. He was playing with a paper airplane and it landed at a bully's feet. Rather than give it back, the bully crumpled it up and threw it at Sanchez. In a moment of pent-up fury, Sanchez beat the bully nearly unconscious. He recalled, He became the receiver on the other end of all the anger that I was holding in inside, all the pain, all the abuse. Sanchez said, I learned that day that if I felt in any way disrespected or hurt, all I had to do was punch him in the mouth. In middle school, Sanchez finally met some other Salvadorans. He was stunned by how comfortable these kids were with their ethnic identity. To them, being Salvadoran wasn't something to be ashamed of. It was a badge of pride. Sanchez soon found out they were members of the Mata Salvatrucha stoners. He started hanging out with the gang for the same reasons as most children. According to a study by Florida International University, friendship is one of the most common reasons young people join gangs. 60% of the survey respondents also said that being in the gang helped them develop self-trust and self-esteem. At this point in the early 80s, there were still only around 40 MSS-13 members in L.A. By the time Sanchez joined, they added the number 13 to the end of their name allegedly because it signified evil. Eventually, they would drop the stoners from the group moniker and become known simply as MS-13. Sanchez started hanging out with the clique in his neighborhood, the Catalina Locos. He also started listening to heavy metal music, 
drinking and smoking pot, which got him in plenty of trouble at home. After coming home drunk at age 12, his mother, a Jehovah's Witness, had the church elders give him a talking to. But it didn't change Sanchez's behavior. Before long, he was officially initiated into the gang. In later years, MS-13's initiation would require a series of tests to prove your loyalty, such as attacking or even killing a rival gang member. But at this point, only one ritual was set in stone, el brinco, or the beating in. This is a ceremonial beating by one or more members of the gang. Typically, it lasts until the group's leader counts to 13. After that, the new member is given a nickname. Sanchez was nicknamed Rebelde, rebel. He was now an official member of the Mara Salvatrucha. By this point in the mid-80s, the ragtag group of stoners was starting to seriously drift into the world of LA gang culture. Their fights with rival gangs became more frequent and more violent. Still, Sanchez recalls that the group spent most of their time hanging out and smoking weed. They would go weeks at a time without encountering any violence. But if someone was having a bad day, they would attack a rival gang member as a way to vent their anger. Within a year or two of Sanchez's initiation, the leader of the Catalina Locos clique was shot in a drive-by. It was the first time a gangster Sanchez knew had been shot. The leader survived, but he drifted away from gang life. Without him, the Catalina Locos eventually disintegrated. But the incident wasn't enough to scare Sanchez away. For better or worse, MS-13 was the only support system he had. So he joined up with another clique, the Normandy Locos, and sank deeper into the gang than ever. Fed up with the constant scoldings and beatings from his mother, Sanchez ran away from home at age 15. He spent the next few years living on the streets, often with other MS-13 members. A survey of gang members in El Salvador found that nearly half of respondents ran away from home before turning 15. Of those, 51% said they left because of abuse, neglect, or other family problems. A report by Insight Crime and the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies says that for MS-13 members, the gang's local clique is the closest to a replacement family a gang member has. Without a place to really call home, Sanchez and his friends fell into a vicious cycle. The teenage runaways camped out in basements or abandoned buildings. They made money through robberies and sex work, then spent it on drugs and alcohol. Gradually, their parties would destroy the place, at which point they'd move on. These crash pads became fittingly known as destroyers. For a few years, Sanchez bounced between destroyers and juvenile detention centers. He had frequent encounters with the LAPD's Rampart Division, the city's most violent police precinct. According to an LAPD report, between 1994 and 1998, Rampart officers injured their suspects three times as often as other divisions. Citywide, the LAPD ramped up their anti-gang efforts in the lead-up to the 1984 LA Olympics. To help clean up the streets, the department received an influx of money and military-grade hardware from the federal government. They used it for mass arrests of suspected gang members and unhoused individuals. Yet even after the games, these tactics continued, becoming the new normal. In 1987, the LAPD launched a new initiative called Operation Hammer. Using their arsenal of tanks and machine guns, officers swept through South Central arresting thousands of suspected gang members. According to one report, on one occasion, over 1,400 people were arrested in a single weekend. 
Around the same time, LA County began using gang injunctions to establish curfews and prevent gang members from gathering in public. The problem was, there was no clear way to define or identify who's a gang member. Countless innocent bystanders were rounded up in the gang sweeps. In some cases, families were banned from spending time together because one of them had been flagged as a gang member. And despite the brutal tactics, violence was still on the rise throughout the 80s. The risk of arrest wasn't much of a deterrent. In fact, Sanchez and his fellow MS-13 members were often trying to get picked up. Within the gang, doing time was seen as a rite of passage. Once they were released, they returned to the streets even more hardened from the experience. On one occasion, Sanchez was released from prison in the morning and arrested again that same evening, while spray-painting the words, I'm back, onto a building. The lack of self-preservation seems to defy logic, but by the gang's standards of toughness and masculinity, willingness to do time was a mark of honor. It also demonstrates how strong a grip the gang has on its members. Sanchez recalled, quote, you start believing in it, you start breathing it, to the point that everything you do, your behavior, your thoughts, your actions, lead to your attitude being changed around. Your life and everything is about your gang, so you end up separating it. You end up believing it as you would believe in a religion, in a cult-like setting. Like some cults, MS-13 bases much of its identity around a hatred of outsiders. In their case, the loathing is targeted at a neighboring Latino gang called 18th Street. Cults often cultivate an us-versus-them mentality by arguing that their members are specially chosen by God while everyone else lives in sin. But with MS-13 and 18th Street, the situation was a little more complicated. For years, the two gangs were allies. 18th Street was a multi-ethnic gang with many Salvadoran members, and in a way, they saw the new upstart gang as a little brother. But as MS-13 grew in size and reputation, tensions appeared. According to Sanchez, 18th Street thought MS-13 was disrespecting their authority. One night in 1989, things finally boiled over. Members of both gangs were at a party when a fight broke out, allegedly about a girl. There are conflicting stories of what happened, but at some point, a group of 18th Street members shot and killed an MS-13 member. The news spread fast. That same night, MS-13 responded by killing an 18th Street member. And 18th Street retaliated just as quickly. Sanchez and a few others tried to stop the violence, but it was too late. By the next night, four people were dead. Just like that, the two gangs were at war. No one can even remember the name of the girl the fight began over, but the barrio had been disrespected, and for that, people were willing to kill. MS-13 soon gained a leg up in the war. Over the next few years, a flood of former soldiers from El Salvador sought asylum in the U.S., and they brought their battlefield mentality to the streets of L.A. Ernesto Miranda, one of MS-13's founding members, said, In this country, we were taught to kill our own people, no matter if they were from your own blood. If your father was the enemy, you had to kill him. So the training we got during the war in our country served to make us one of the most violent gangs in the United States. Coming up, the gang war intensifies. Now back to the story. Ernesto Deras always wanted to be a soldier. The youngest of eight children, he was raised on a coffee plantation in Santa Ana, El Salvador's industrial center. 
His mother cleaned the plantation owner's house. It's no surprise that Deras was drawn to the military. He grew up during the turmoil of the Salvadoran Civil War. For decades, El Salvador had been ruled by a series of military dictators, propped up by the country's wealthy landowners. By 1979, when Deras was around 10 years old, a military coup overtook the Salvadoran government, launching a full-scale war between authorities and guerrilla groups. The violence was inescapable. When Deras was a teenager, he saw his first dead body. A naked man, covered in burn marks, lying next to a coffee farm near his house. The man's fingers had been cut off, presumably as a torture tactic. As the war progressed, it was common to see mutilated corpses and severed heads on spikes, left in the streets as a warning by state-sponsored death squads. Deras and his family coped with the violence by convincing themselves that the victims deserved it. He later told author Stephen Dudley, we just knew that the people they killed were part of the guerrillas, were doing something wrong. And us? Well, we just had faith that we weren't involved in any of that. In his late teens, Deras made good on his childhood dream and joined the army. He became a rifleman in the Bayoso Battalion, a specialized unit trained and armed by the U.S. Special Forces. Fearing that El Salvador would fall to communism, the U.S. sent troops and millions of dollars in aid to support the military dictatorship. Deidas' unit was one of several U.S.-trained battalions. They had a clear objective, attack and destroy villages that were believed to support the guerrillas. A few years before Deidas joined, the battalion was involved in a massacre in Chalatenango, where hundreds of civilians were killed. This was business as usual. According to a report in the U.N. Truth Commission, quote, in all instances, troops acted in the same way. They killed anyone they came across, men, women, and children then set fire to the houses. In an interview with the LA Times, Deras said he felt manipulated by his commanders. He recalled, There were officers who told me to go kill that family, and I would do it, even though I didn't want to. By the end of the decade-long war, around 75,000 people were dead. A quarter of El Salvador's population had fled to the U.S. to escape the violence. As soon as peace negotiations were underway in 1990, Deras joined the exodus. The war was over, but that didn't mean he was safe. The guerrillas knew he was a soldier, and they were looking for revenge. Fearing for his life, Deras' mother convinced him to move to the U.S. After crossing the border in early 1990, Deras received political asylum and settled in North Hollywood. He didn't intend to stay there permanently. Once the danger died down, he planned to go back to El Salvador. Deidas missed home. He missed the sense of belonging he'd felt in the army. And he missed fighting. Luckily for him, a few months after he arrived in North Hollywood, he was introduced to the Mata Salvatrucha. In an interview with the LA Times, Deidas said that MS-13 reminded him of the army. He was fighting beside his own people with the same sense of camaraderie, but instead of guerrillas, the Salvadoran gang was warring against their mainly Mexican-American rivals. Deidas was quickly initiated into MS-13 San Fernando Valley clique, the Fulton Locos. He was given the nickname Satan, and in the eyes of their rivals, he lived up to the name. 
By the time Deras joined in 1990, MS-13 had hundreds of members throughout the city. With his military experience, Deras knew how to whip the ragtag street gang into fighting shape. He taught his fellow members about weapons, recon, and tactical strategies to gain ground during turf wars. His apartment became their home base for strategizing and storing weapons. These were necessary skills if they wanted to survive. The Fulton Locos were the only MS-13 clique in the San Fernando Valley. There were at least 75 other gangs in the area, and MS-13 was a target for all of them. That wasn't all they had to contend with. By the early 90s, the LAPD's brutal anti-gang tactics had made no dent in violent crime, but they were drawing massive backlash from the public. The LAPD was widely accused of excessive force and racial profiling. Anti-gang initiatives like Operation Hammer mainly targeted black and Latino neighborhoods. Routine traffic stops were overwhelmingly used as a pretext to search and arrest black residents. In 1992, nearly half of all black men and teenagers in LA were listed in the gang database. Around this time, there were several incidents that further increased racial tensions in the city. In 1991, a young black girl named Latasha Harlins was shot and killed by a Korean-American shop owner who thought she was stealing a bottle of orange juice. That same month, four police officers were charged for assaulting a black man named Rodney King. When the case went to trial in April 1992, all four officers were acquitted. It was the breaking point for the community. As soon as the verdicts were announced, Los Angeles exploded with riots. Looting and rioting continued for the next week. The Fulton Locos seized the opportunity to drive a stolen truck into a Nike store and steal some sneakers. In the middle of their looting spree, they ran into the police. Deras was arrested and sent to L.A. County Jail. The jail was controlled by the Mexican Mafia, an alliance of various Latino gangs. The FBI considered them the strongest prison gang in California. At the time, MS-13 wasn't allied with the Mafia and Deras paid the price from the moment he stepped behind bars. As soon as Deras told his fellow inmates he was Salvadoran, he was severely beaten. He was soon transferred to a different area of the jail where he was beaten again. His saving grace was that he caught chicken pox and spent most of his 30-day sentence in the safety of the hospital ward. Outside of prison, the Mafia was also targeting MS-13 members in the streets. Eventually, MS-13 leaders were forced to negotiate a truce. In exchange for an end to the beatings, they'd pay a regular tax to the Mexican Mafia. By some accounts, this is actually when the 13 was added to the gang's name, representing the 13th letter of the alphabet, M. However, some members, like Sanchez, claim the 13 was put in much earlier. Either way, the outsider Salvadoran gang was now officially allied with the Mexican gangs they'd once banded together to protect themselves from. As they say, if you can't beat them, join them. Once the truce was sanctioned, Deras was approached by an anti-gang activist named William Blinky Rodriguez. Blinky was organizing a peace summit for dozens of gangs in the valley, and he thought Deras was the only person who could bring the Fulton Locos clique into the fold. Deras was wary. But he knew that if he didn't go, the other gangs would say he had chickened out. So he led a group of Fulton members to the meeting in Pacoima Park, armed and ready for whatever was in store. He listened as various gang leaders aired their grievances, but Blinky kept the tensions in check. 
Blinky had never been a gang member, and neither had his 16-year-old son, who was innocently killed in a gang shooting a few years earlier. He made it clear to the gangsters that war had consequences, but peace had benefits for everyone. As much as Deras loved fighting, he knew that if MS-13 didn't get on board, they'd be the sole target of every other gang in the valley. So he agreed to the ceasefire. In the aftermath of the Rodney King riots, the Crips and Bloods had formed their own truce. Within a year, gang-related homicides fell by 62%. By all measures, this should have been the beginning of a new, more peaceful era for L.A. gangs. But the authorities weren't giving up on their side of the fight. LAPD Chief Daryl Gates blamed the riots and looting on illegal aliens. Local and federal officials used the unrest as a pretext to detain and deport hundreds of undocumented immigrants. That same year, the Immigration and Naturalization Service launched its Violent Gang Task Force. The program was aimed at deporting any immigrants with criminal records, even if they were legal residents. And though crime rates were already falling steadily, President Bill Clinton made crime and illegal immigration two of his main priorities in the mid-90s. Over the next few years, the dual crackdowns on gangs and immigration intensified. In 1994, new sentencing laws caused the incarceration rate to skyrocket. Two years later, a new law expanded the category of crimes that were grounds for deportation, including nonviolent crimes ranging from theft to perjury if they came with a prison sentence of at least a year. As a result, countless MS-13 members were sent back to El Salvador where the Civil War had barely ended. Many of them had lived their whole lives in the U.S. and barely knew anyone in El Salvador. For those with visible gang tattoos, getting a job was nearly impossible. Carolyn Rose Avila, the regional director of Save the Children, described the challenges facing the deportees. She said, they're not really wanted anywhere. They're really in limbo. If they had any options at all in the States, they have even fewer options in El Salvador, where they're treated like garbage, like toxic waste. With no other support system, the deported gang members naturally flocked together. And in doing so, they spread American gang culture to their homeland. In his book, MS-13, The Making of America's Most Notorious Gang, Author Stephen Dudley profiles a young man who goes by the pseudonym Norman. Growing up during the Salvadoran Civil War, Norman and his family spent days hiding indoors while gunfire swept through their town. By the time the war ended when Norman was 16, all six of his older siblings had fled to the U.S. In Los Angeles, two of Norman's brothers joined MS-13. But Norman himself wasn't exposed to the gang until the early 90s when a childhood friend who fled to the U.S. was deported back to their hometown. Little Man, as the friend had been nicknamed, had joined MS-13 in the States. El Salvador had gangs, but they were more similar to what MS-13 had been in the early days, groups of kids drinking and partying. The structure and rituals that gangs developed in the United States were unlike anything the Salvadorans had seen before, and they were fascinated by it. Between going to school in the mornings and working at a factory in the afternoons, Norman started hanging out with Little Man and his fellow gang members. He was enticed by the artifacts of American culture that Little Man brought back with him. Disney movies, hip-hop, and English slang. The newly arrived gangsters also had chips on their shoulders, a sense of identity forged by the prejudice they'd faced in the U.S. One member who joined MS-13 in El Salvador told researcher Robert Brenneman that a gang member from L.A., quote, 
told us that illegals suffer there and that they destroy them, and of course we believed him. They sow hatred in you like that because they come down with this hatred from being deported and mistreated. The hatred fed into the gang's in-group mentality. It rallied and united the Salvadorans against vague foreign enemies, and some domestic ones too. Because MS-13 wasn't the only gang that was exported to El Salvador, some of their rivals, the 18th Street Gang, had also arrived. And by the mid-90s, their brutal conflict resumed. As the two gangs fought for territory, violence broke out in public places. It started with fistfights, then knives, then machetes, a favorite weapon of the U.S. gangs. The international cycle of violence had come full circle. The U.S. supported a brutal dictatorship in El Salvador. Salvadorans then fled to the U.S., where poverty and discrimination drew some of them into gang life. As gang members were jailed and deported, they brought their feuds back home, ushering in a new era of bloody conflict in their home country. And to escape the heightened gang violence in El Salvador, many members tried to return to the U.S., starting the cycle all over again. Three decades later, the cycle of violence is still unbroken, and for most gang members, there seems to be no escape. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two on MS-13. We'll look at how the gang became a target for the FBI, and what happens when members try to leave. For more information on MS-13, amongst the many sources we used, we found MS-13, The Making of America's Most Notorious Gang by Stephen Dudley, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Jaron Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Kate Gallagher, edited by Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Aaron Larson. Cult stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.